Hello, everybody. My name is Daniel Prince, and I am the host of the Once Bitten podcast. This is a podcast focused on Bitcoin. It's my mission to interview as many people as I can around the different aspects of Bitcoin and help people understand exactly what Bitcoin could mean for them and for their families and for their future. I hope you enjoy the show. Thank you so much for listening. Hey guys, welcome to this edition of the Once Bitten podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. Today we have Alex Gladstein back on the show with a young lady called Letty, who has yet to take the orange pill, but does a lot of incredible work for refugees based in Europe. And I thought this would be the perfect opportunity for Alex to help her understand exactly what Bitcoin can mean for the people that she is trying to help. So I hope this helps you guys as well get a deeper understanding of what this technology is bringing to people and how it can help change so many lives in so many different ways so enjoy this one before we do the show i need to shill those companies that have been so kind to support me that is coinfloor.co.uk forward slash bitten that is a bitcoin only exchange in the uk swanbitcoin.com forward slash bitten that is a dca service dollar cost average app that you can use in the us these guys are killing it they're across all 50 states Go check them out. And if you are in Europe and you want to uh, fiat cost average out of your Swiss francs or your euros, you can use Relay, R-E-L-A-I dot C-H to start stacking some sats and get into the Bitcoin rabbit hole. And a big shill for Alvaro, who's been on the uh, podcast before. He's the partner with Letty. You'll get to learn this. And he is running something called Minds Studio, M-I-N-D-S Studio.com forward slash Bitcoin, where he's trying to help as many noobs as possible on a, a Zoom call. So make sure you sign up, check that out. Come join us on the Zoom calls. And I hope you enjoy this episode and get a lot out of it. Thank you for listening. Right. Hey, guys, welcome into the show is Letty from Path.ai and Alex Gladstein from the Human Rights Foundation. And with me, of course, is Lauren. So uh, hi, Letty, first. Hi. And hi, Alex. Thanks so much for joining us. Hey, great to be here. Right. OK, Lauren, fire away. What's your question? OK, so my question is, why is Bitcoin so important to refugees? Okay, I thought we were going to start with an easy question, but <laughs> um, well, I think we're here to also figure that one out, right? Uh, I'm not an expert in Bitcoin, but every time I spoke with Daniel and also my co-founder Alvaro, who now is all about Bitcoin, um, it seemed to be a system that makes a lot of sense um, for people like refugees whose uh, decentralized uh, system is making it really hard for them to, to succeed and thrive and get their backs, their lives back under control. So yeah, um, I hope that by the end of the show, we can have a, a more clear answer to this question, but I'm sure there are so many ways in which refugees can uh, benefit from Bitcoin. Alex, sure. do you wanna answer the same question? Yeah, no, I'd love to. Look, I mean, I, I refugee is a, is a big word. I'm uh, Albert Einstein was a refugee. Uh, 
refugees are brilliant people who've been forced from their homelands because of trauma or, or political persecution uh, or conflict. Um, many refugees are extremely talented. Uh, many refugees are, are entrepreneurs. Um, many refugees are very digitally connected. Uh, they have to leave because there's no economic opportunity where they live or, or they are being persecuted for something or there's war, you know, I mean, generally speaking. Um, or they're escaping a very brutal system like North Korea or Eritrea. Uh, there's many, many refugees who flee from North Korea every year, for example. Um, the reason why Bitcoin is, is, is so important in this context is it, it'll, it, for two reasons. Number one, it, it allows uh, anyone to bring their, their time and energy with them to a new place uh, without government permission. So there are many, for example, Venezuelans who've um, decided to leave Venezuela for better economic opportunity or because they are afraid of being put in prison and, and they leave the country. Uh, but before they leave, they sell their assets into Bitcoin and then they bring that with them to the new country, Colombia, Brazil, Canada, United States, Spain, Argentina, and then they can start a new life there with that bank account that they control, right? That's very important. The, the second reason is that it's permissionless, right? You don't need an ID to use Bitcoin. So uh, a lot of refugees obviously don't have uh, an ID that's valid in their new country. It doesn't matter. All they need is an internet connection and I can, I, they can earn income from me. They can work for me and, and they can earn it and then they can sell it in a peer-to-peer -peer marketplace. So for those two reasons, like that, that number one, this, this sort of allows people to be their own bank and, and bring their wealth with them, which wasn't possible for people fleeing Germany, for example, after World War, during World War II, after World War II. Uh, and, and for that second reason that anybody can use Bitcoin, regardless of what kind of passport they have or documents they have, um, I, I think it's a tremendously important uh, topic for this, 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 this conversation. So there you go. How does that sound? It sounds very exciting. Yeah. And this yeah. is this is why I wanted to get Alex and, and Letty on, on the show together because Letty works uh, for a company mm -hmm. called... Actually, I'm going to ask Letty. Um, Letty, can you explain why you named the company, um, how you named it? It's, it's spelled P-A-Z, um, but please go and, uh, and let the listeners know how you come to this, this name. Yeah. So path means peace in Spanish, but it also sounds like a, a path, a pathway. So what we're doing here is we're, we're building a bridge for refugees towards a more uh, peaceful future. So we thought that it would make sense. Yeah, I love it. Do you have any more questions before we get into this? Um, no. Okay. Okay, say goodnight then. Thank you. Bye. Goodnight. Bye. Bye. <clears throat> right, so um, just to set uh, the context for, for the listeners, um, I met Letty through Alvaro, who's also been on the show. They do this, uh, this work together with PATH, and they work very closely with refugees. Um, in, uh, Letty, in particular, I think, has spent many months or even years in, in refugee camps around, around Europe and getting a very, very close look at the system. And when I was trying to explain to them what Bitcoin could bring to to the people that they're trying to help, if they could start educating uh, them about Bitcoin and how they could then pass the education on to their friends and family that are still stuck at home, that'd be very powerful. And then I thought, well, there's one person I know that can do a much better job than that, and that's Alex. And Alex, you kindly agreed to come on the show and um, kind of fill in the blanks and give, give your uh, expertise from working with 
well, very, very um, closely with, with the refugees and people such as that um, through the Human Rights Foundation. So I thought we'd start, first of all, uh, Letty, I think there's a big um, misunderstanding of, of how the system even works and the steps that a refugee would have to go through. So if you could explain like the first initial step that um, somebody might be facing, and then perhaps we can move that across to Alex and he can fill in the blanks as to how Bitcoin would be able to help that person in that particular situation. And then we'll move on to step two, perhaps. Sounds great. Um, I can, I'm going to explain it based on Europe. And also I'm gonna give a very general explanation because then each country has their own um, legislation. But in, in, in big terms, I think the first, the first problem is that in order for you to um, ask for international protection, therefore asylum, you need to be present in the country that will give you that protection. But there are no legal or safe passages for people who are at risk to make it into those countries. So many times they have to risk their lives and be treated as criminals until they are uh, registered in the system. And then um, during all those months or even years, while they are waiting for their asylum petitions to be studied, they don't have any rights, no rights to work, or some do have some right to work at, at a specific point, but then depending on the uh, resolution of their asylum petition, they might not, they, they might take that right away. So it's, it, the whole system is really, uh, it puts refugees at a disadvantage from the beginning, even from before they, they leave their countries. Right, Alex, do you have anything to, to add there and, and how Bitcoin um, could could help somebody like at this very early stage, at the first stage? Yeah, of... yeah. I mean, it's not again. This is not theory. Uh, this is well documented that many many refugees uh, have used Bitcoin. Um, again, I mean, like I think that this term refugee is. I mean, we we the three of us probably have a particular image burned into our mind of what that means or what that is. But re in reality, like they're so diverse and they come from so many different countries and have so many different issues. Like I have a friend, he's a refugee. He lives in Norway. I mean, he he was from the Middle East and he settled in Norway. You know, his plight is very different than um, it's it's a plight, but it's very different than the woman who was sex trafficked out of North Korea into China. They're both refugees. Um, so I think there's like very, very different levels of uh, access to information for many different kinds of refugees, right? Um, obviously for this guy who now lives in Norway, uh, yeah, Bitcoin's amazing. He still can't open a bank account in Norway. It's like a huge pain, or at least he couldn't for years. He was like financially discriminated against. So he can earn Bitcoin and, you know, earn his salary in it, receive donations in it, and then he can sell it peer to peer, no problem. And, and like, that's a massive financial empowerment tool for him. That's very different from, you know, someone who, who is stuck in a politically volatile environment or repressive environment. Um, but even there, Bitcoin can be huge. I mean, we're talking people who fled on by foot from Venezuela from a humanitarian catastrophe. And again, they brought their Bitcoin with them. And what I mean by that, just for the listener, maybe, I mean, I'm, I, I would imagine everybody who listens to your show, uh, <laughs> Daniel, is a, 
is uh, is very very familiar with Bitcoin. But like, what I really mean by that is like their private key. You know, whether that's in a, you know a series of twenty four words that they've written down, or whether they use a hot wallet, or or whether they've even sent the Bitcoin to someone else in a different country. It doesn't matter. The point is that like before they make that decision to leave, and and this is common out of Iran. Venezuela, other countries, people are fleeing, they're leaving, they're deciding to go somewhere else to America, maybe to Canada, Australia, Uyghurs fleeing China, they mainly go to Australia or, or Canada or United States. Um, uh, they, they can move their assets with them. And, and that that is very historic. That was like not possible really to do before. Uh, so easily because your, your assets were like tied up in the banking system. And like, you'd have to go withdraw them. And then if you if you know, if you're fleeing for political persecution, oh, yeah, the bank account might be frozen or whatever. Or a lot of these people don't even have bank accounts, right? Um, the point is, it's very helpful as a way for people to like bring their assets with them. So like this even goes to Afghanistan as an example. I have a friend who uh, employed women, she employed women in Afghanistan to work for her. And one of those women had to flee Afghanistan for political reasons. And she was a refugee and she went through Iran, through Turkey by foot, train, car, made it to Europe, made it to Germany. Um, she was able to bring her Bitcoin with her and, and it accumulated in value against the Euro a lot during her journey. And by the time she got to Germany, uh, she was able to spend it, start a new life. So, I mean, these are, these are very powerful examples. This is, I just want to underline, this is not like theoretical. Yeah, and I, I want to add here that I've realized that the moment a refugee has a job or has income, then they are not at such disadvantage in the system as when they lose all their money because of the trip. Because when you have um, financial assets and then you can make sure to provide for yourself, you will be able to survive much better the, the time while you are in this limbo where the system is not helping you. While there's so many people that I work with who back in Syria, they, they had, they were working for these big companies, they have master's degrees, their kids were like, probably Daniel, your kids, you know, going to a Japanese club or whatever. And now suddenly it's, they're living in this tent and they cannot even choose what they are eating tonight because they depend on uh, the humanitarian aid resources are giving to them. So I completely agree with Alex's point. Yeah, there's also the, the, on the Syrian issue, exactly. Like a lot of people just had to leave on, and earlier in the, revol earlier in the, in the revolution, um, a lot of middle-class Syrians did, did do that. And, and in Venezuela too, they, the, I can't remember the exact name. Um, uh, perhaps let you know it, that there's a, it's a, it's a trend, it's in Spanish, it's a term for people who've left by their feet versus people who flew. So it's, it's, they, it's an inside joke about different kinds of refugees. But earlier in, in these crises, a, a lot of people realized what was happening and they were like, well, we're leaving. And they got on a plane and they left. They did not go through the jungle or the desert or the Mediterranean. Um, la later on, a lot of people didn't have that option. A lot of people also couldn't afford to. So they, they, they had to go through these like more, more dangerous routes, right? Um, and for a lot of those people in the earlier days, um, yeah, like even that was hard. Like, again, if you're leaving for political reasons, you don't have time to like go try to sell your house and like through the bank system and, and like deal with all that paperwork. Like you're trying to not get tortured to death. So like you're leaving tonight at 6 p.m., right? So for some of these folks who had 
some assets already in Bitcoin, like it, it doesn't matter. They can leave right away. They have control over, they are their own bank. So hearing the stories from these people has been, has been very powerful for, for me at least. How would you, um, one, one good conversation that would come out of uh, my discussion with you and Alvaro was your realization that central planning is just an absolute nightmare. Uh, and this is obviously something that uh, is big in the, the Bitcoin space. You know, we, we want uh, you know, more self-sovereignty and less policies, less regulations, less schemes, uh, whatever you want to call them, systems. How is the system letting down refugees that, that you've been coming into contact with, um, you know, people that are escaping for whatever reason, their, their situation? I think that first, refugees are not perceived as equal human beings like they they without knowing them without giving them a chance to know who they are they are already treated like this very vulnerable uh, population and people in need and they are all um treated as a mass and what i start and this is my personal interpretation of what has been happening because i've from day one i've just been trying to empower refugees and and be by their side and understand well ask them what do you need and how can we help because there are a lot of europeans who are very ashamed of how the european union and all the european countries are reacting to the influx of refugees and we want to help so um by doing that i had a lot of resentment from the institutions and basically saying this is very dangerous because if you again my interpretation they never said that specifically but the way they acted was as if when you empower people they are very difficult to control and the way the migration policies and specifically the asylum policies in europe are created are to put everyone in very inhumane condition under very inhumane conditions and then you take away everything they, they have in terms of their agency, their dignity, their self-esteem. Their... So at the end of the day, they, they stop even believing um, that they are who they used to be. And one of the first things that we work on with our participants is exactly that. They say, oh, I used to be an engineer or I used to be. And he's like, no, you still are. Because that's, that's your education, that's your expertise. So we really work to help them regain control of that. And instead of having that passive attitude that is almost enforced, because if you just have to wait for years in, in one place where nothing happens, where you're isolated from other um, communities and all you can do is wait, then for your mental health, you just kind of slow down right and and our job is exactly to do the opposite and help them uh, reactivate so to answer your question what are some other ways in which the system is failing them um there are no education programs um tailored to the specific needs of refugees uh, refugees many are traumatized either by what happened to them back in their countries or even the journey and how they are being received in the host communities uh, for the reasons I just explained. And um, many of the programs that the government would fund for them are not aligned with what the market needs. So they are always behind. The second problem is the um, homologation. Do you say that way? Like 
when your titles need to be your diplomas need to be um i only know the word in spanish is is <laughs> if you have a diploma from venezuela but you are in spain that diploma doesn't work you need to go through a process where the government says okay yes you're right this is you know we'll grant you the the um, equivalent Mm -hmm. Do you guys know the word so, where I'm talking I, about? I don't. Alex, do you know the uh, the word? I, I think it, like it, basically, but like equivalency, like mm -hmm. the, between. Yeah. 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 So this is important because I see a lot of people who um, they were engineers or they were directors, and suddenly they are put into a very low category, which ends up um, that they only have access to precarious jobs and uh, it takes according to our research it takes refugees in Europe eight times more to get a job than a non-refugee with exactly the same skills and, and experience so it's it's partly because of that and then um, when it comes to uh, employment which is our um, you know our focus because the moment a refugee has a job they stop being a refugee for the eyes of the system they're just another uh, citizen or another professional um, the whole recruitment processes are not created to identify talent that is unique that is diverse it's almost like you have to tick certain boxes and now even more with automation that they're using um, AI to filter the CVs and they're looking for specific keywords or a refugee has a very unique CV. There probably will be a gap or they will come from a university that you've never heard of and that you cannot double check because maybe it's even destroyed, um, but they have a lot other things that they can bring to the table on top of their education that is super valuable for any, any team, like their resilience, their hard work, their thinking out of the box. They, they know what problems, what real problems are like. So when they, in a, in a team, when they face difficulties, they are the first ones to, you know, not give up and, and work the extra mile. Um, so those are just some of the... Difficult. Not just some of the challenges of the yeah. administrative processes to to navigate the systems. Uh, Alex, you have anything to add to that? The way the systems are set yeah. up in certain I mean, countries. Look, the like the, these are all like social trust systems or systems where governments are or institutions are providing some sort of identity or claim for someone, um, and and that's inevitable. I mean, that's the world we live in, and it's very difficult. Um, the interesting thing is Bitcoin kind of uh, provides a different model. Obviously, it doesn't do everything. I mean, it's not going to help you prove that you're, uh, you know, a computer engineer in a new country. Um, but regardless of all those problems, which we need to solve and address, and they're, they are very thorny, it, it does allow you to have financial uh, sovereignty, regardless of where you are and who you are. Um, and that's incredibly powerful, because then it allows you to at least have that foundation, right? So it allows you to control your wealth and bring it with you, protect it against not just theft and, uh, you know, state confiscation, but but devaluation, which is which is really and for many people like the worst part of this. A lot of refugees are fleeing from a country where they're 
fiat current, their currency that they buy food in and save in and that makes up the fabric of their society is, is collapsed completely. And that they, their purchasing power is, is declining rather quickly. This obviously is the case in Venezuela, uh, Zimbabwe, uh, Somaliland, uh, Iran, many other places. I mean, high inflation is, is unfortunately quite common. So again, like we have two different issues here. We have like the problem of someone being uprooted from one society and going to another and trying to like prove that they were the same person, which is a, a hugely daunting challenge. Um, but the good news is they don't need to do that with their wealth. Uh, they can now that or, or whatever amount of savings or income or wages they were able to just have right before they left, they can just kind of transfer that point to point to the new place. And then if they need to, they can sell it for the local currency in the new country without having a bank account. And that to me is like very powerful. Yeah, it's huge. And I don't think we're solving the, um, the centralized systems anytime soon well so it's it's also than... let's see that like the problem is that like this is again this is not theory this could be helping many 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 more refugees today but the powers that be who control the refugee industry uh don't understand this yet and and maybe they'll be open-minded okay but i would assume <laughs> that actually no uh like from our experiences over the last three or four years these institutions have um skipped bitcoin or ignored it in favor of trying to create some sort of centralized database solution for these people. Um, and it's, it's almost like mark, you know, marketing stuff at some, at different times. Like they're like, Oh, we're going to use this blockchain to like feed these refugees in this camp. It's absurd. Like, like it, not helpful. Um, the, the whole point is that it's like a sovereign thing that nobody controls, which probably does not mesh well with these like people who run these huge organizations that control all these refugees, right. Especially in these camps different countries but in reality like if they wanted to actually help people they would be teaching them about this asset that any of them could control on their own without honestly without even a phone i mean i know we don't um you know advertise this often because it's it's a little more risky but like almost every person in the west letty who has a hardware wallet has a 24 words written down on a piece of paper and that's that's their password so i mean you can you can design systems where you can allocate Bitcoin to people or you can allow them to earn, they don't need a phone or a USB key. I mean, they, they, they just need to have control of their private key and that's all their wealth. So if there were actually people in these organizations devoted to this, there would be massive amounts of, of improvement. Um, but unfortunately, they're just not interested for some reason or, or, or they haven't they haven't opened their mind to it or, or they haven't come across, they haven't realized it yet, um, which, which you know is regrettable. I think so. Just um, to so, sorry, Letty, just to stick here because you said something at the beginning there when you were just answering the last question, and Alex has just touched on it again. The institutions, um, I'm assuming these are like uh, NGOs or something like that. And you said you were getting a lot of pushback from institutions saying the work you're doing to empower refugees is dangerous and is contrary to what they are trying to achieve. So, what 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 pressure are they putting on you? and um and why like you know that this is and alex um actually if i start with alex are you seeing is that something you've you've seen as well with the human rights foundation well look i mean everybody's you know got conjured captured by this idea of the the decentralized blockchain or whatever um in 2016 and 17 right or 18 after the the retail driven uh bitcoin bubble right um 
so you had a lot of stuff written, a lot of initiatives in late 2017, early 2018 to like somehow take like this blockchain concept and, and try to help vulnerable populations with it. And the problem was that, that this was like the wrong way to approach it. Like people were trying to like take this thing that was inside Bitcoin and remove it from Bitcoin and, and basically like weaken it or, or tame it in some way. And then, and then try to use it to, to help people in, in a way that they could more control. And that defeats the entire purpose of it. So it's kind of like, I mean, it's, it's not the greatest metaphor, but it's kind of like, <laughs> like the car has an engine in it. If you remove the engine from the car, the engine doesn't do anything on its own. It needs to be in the car. So people are taking this idea of like a, 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 a distributed uh, database that, that holds records. That's, that's part of the Bitcoin car. And they're trying to remove that database piece, the blockchain from the car, but it doesn't do anything on its own. It's not helpful. Um, but unfortunately there was like just this huge amounts of money, millions of dollars spent by rec by, by UNHCR and uh, the uh, world food program and all these people who have like endless giant bankrolls um, to like figure out how to use blockchain to help refugees. I mean, this was absolutely ludicrous and a massive waste of money. Um, and all it resulted in was centralized systems. So these refugees in some of these camps had to like scan their eyes to get food. Who's who's holding that data? Like what, what is going on here? I mean, it's absurd. In reality, what they should have done is educate people about Bitcoin, show them how, how they could all be their own bank and show them how they could start earning. Even in, the, even in these camps, there's vibrant economies. They can earn, they can trade, they can sell. Um, I mean, it just was so crazy to me. And one time I was with a friend of mine who's a, a Burmese refugee. She's a Rohingya. Uh, from a Muslim minority, and I was with her in California here. Uh, she's a, a, a very uh, famous uh, uh, leader of this um, community and, and is a brilliant woman, and she's got degrees at all these different schools. And um, we were just sitting at dinner in Berkeley, California, and um, I just noted that, like, hey, it was morning time now in, in Bangladesh where these camps were, and I was asking her about the camps, like, you know, do they have um, internet access? And she says that um, parts of the camp do, not not the whole camp, but like there's places where you can go to, to access that. And I said, well, is there like a market inside the camps? And they're like, yeah, yeah. Like, every, you know, every day, like, you know, Bangladeshis will come and try to sell things, you know, to the Rohingya um, and there's like barter and trade. Okay. So I'm like, well, and like, do some of them have, have phones? And she's like, yeah, some of them, some, not all of course, but like some of them do. So it's like, okay, so we could sit here at, in, in California and we could send $100 worth of Bitcoin and in minutes it would arrive into that camp. And then that person could then trade that Bitcoin uh, to these Bangladeshi merchants, the enterprising ones for any sort of goods they need. And, and like we can start, this is like not, does not require any innovation or any blockchain programs or any research. It can happen right now. This was, this conversation took place like two years ago. I mean, it's just like, the problem is the people in charge of these institutions don't understand this. And we're, we've lost a huge amount of opportunities to help people. Either they don't understand it or they don't want it to happen, Letty. What, yeah, they might be your... against it because they can't control it. Okay. And I, you know. I would say that it starts with not understanding and tech being in general, a big unknown for these organizations because humanitarian aid has been something that is pretty much done uh, even when you study, because I, I have a degree in social work, I have a master's in um, uh, international conflicts, international development and violence. So I, I kind of know what people are being taught 
uh, when they are going to work for these big organizations and nothing close to technology, right? So to answer back uh, your question, Daniel, the first reason why we were being rejected at the beginning was because we were bringing three things together. We were bringing high tech innovation and we were a company, we're not an NGO. So we were trying to create, like come out of the system, do things differently. And also they saw us like these um, individuals, young people with a very startup mindset deciding to take ownership on a big international problem and put together our, our network, our resources, our knowledge to bring solutions that would help those who um, need it the most. So that's why they saw it as a threat. Like, wait, I cannot control you because you don't, first of all, you don't need me because because we are an independent body, we're a company, we're a private entity. We can provide services and, and refugees are people with their own rights so they can get access to our services. So that was the first thing they did not like. Um, this, so in order to uh, impede us from, uh, from succeeding, uh, the first big, big blockage I faced was that we were raising funding for a, through a Kickstarter to run our first pilot in two refugee camps in Greece. And uh, even one of the refugee camps where we were going to do it, uh, the computers were stolen just a week before uh, we were about to, to go and do the, the pilot. So we did not just raise funding, but we also managed to get a donation of more than 24 computers to the camp. And there I was uh, with my rental car and my team and all the luggage with the laptops and all the material we needed for the boot camp at the gate of the refugee camp. And a person with, with the vest came out and said, sorry, but you can't come in. And it was like, you're kidding, right? I mean, I just told all these people who have put money that I was coming here to do this. And now you, you're saying I can't? And they say, yeah. yeah, sorry, because what if they become hackers? What if like, it's not, it's not safe. So again, going back to lack of knowledge, right? Like if you don't understand technology, if you don't understand that the system is becoming more and more digital and learning digital skills can only help you. So I'm, I'm going, I'm trying to take this even lower than blockchain, you know, like the basics. Just, but they don't yeah. think that's as important. The, the, the other crazy part is that there's like a, look at there's morals and politics here, right? Like one of the most frustrating things I ever saw was, uh, you know, the US government has sanctions against countries, right? So there's like certain sanctions against uh, the government of Venezuela because the government of Venezuela is evil and tortured students and massacred a lot of people and starved the population and did all these mean things. Um, which is fair, okay? <clears throat> but um, because of the US government's own sanctions, like people couldn't deliver aid to Venezuelans. So <clears throat> like, like the World Bank and stuff, like basically couldn't, uh, you know, couldn't get in there until, until the regime changed or whatever, it was ridiculous. So they had to sit on the sidelines with these bags of money that they have in Washington and they couldn't give it to Venezuelans because they refused to use Bitcoin. 
I mean, all they had to do, literally, there were there are many civil society organizations operating food kitchens inside Venezuela to feed hungry people who accept Bitcoin, who use it, who understand it, who know how to use it. All they had to do was sit there and buy Bitcoin and send it to them. And they could have saved so many lives and they didn't. And they refused to for these stupid political reasons. And it's really unforgivable and frustrating. So you both faced some awful pushback from, from, from these systems, these centralized systems, which obviously are trying to, I don't know, Alex, I mean, are they trying to do the right thing or are they just like so completely conceited? No, like, look, what, I'm what, sure Letty would agree, hopefully, that like, look, most people who work, most of the individual humans who work for these organizations are good people. They could be working for an investment bank. You know, they, they're working for the World Food Program or, you know, the Red Cross or the World Bank because they they think they can make a difference and they're, they're devoting their lives to that. And that's a wonderful thing. Um, the problem is that like the, the institution itself is very uh, 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 risk averse and, you know, very conservative, very careful um, and has to abide by like all this these million laws. Right. Um, and here we have a technology that that cuts through all of that and is 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 hard to understand. Like there's no question. And, and it requires research and, 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 like a, and like a thoughtful approach. Like there's a reason why most people like avoided Bitcoin up until this day, most people have avoided Bitcoin because they think it's for criminals or uh, that it, it wastes energy or that it's uh, un, unreliable or whatever. So like there's this perception of it and that, that prevents people from like taking it seriously. Uh, it's only for nerds on the internet or whatever, whatever. Um, and that's been a really costly mistake because these people, these institutions have written it off for whatever reason and haven't realized that it can be this like incredible tool for humanitarian aid. I mean, think about all the waste in middlemen. I mean, there are US government programs where we've delivered $20 million grants to countries in Africa where the actual people that we're trying to help get like less than 10% of the money. I mean, it all gets stolen along the way by people in the middle. And I say stolen, they say processed, you know, fees, whatever, that's this thing and the other. I mean, the actual, if you donate to a big organization for some, some like some person who's working on a farm in some country, the, the, you, it's not like you give $10 and they get $10. They get like a fraction of that. So all of a sudden here we have a thing that's completely peer to peer. You can have the relationship literally with the person you're helping. And, and Hey, if they waste the money on corruption, fine. Like, but at least like they get the money, like, right. So like the fact that you have to move these and, and anyone who's you know, Letty, I'm sure you've seen this, anyone who's applied for money from like the World Bank or the US government or whatever, it's this huge process. It takes months. You have to write these applications. It, they have to like hire someone literally to write the proposal because it's so freaking complicated and do all the diligence and all the accountability and all this stuff. And then maybe six months later, they approve it. And then maybe six months later, you get the wire and then, okay, now you help people. This could be done in 20 minutes. Uh, okay. Yeah. So like we now have the technology to do that. The problem is there's so many people whose jobs rely on all that middle fat process in the middle, all the fat in the middle. So, you know, they're going to be resistant to this. Um, but the reality is the humanitarian industry is extremely exploitative. It's very wasteful. And, and you know, it's kind of like often like having a bucket with holes in it and you put water in and it's like pouring out. So and then and then finally, it often ends up propping up dictators. There's a huge amount of aid people who are like, committed to helping, but in, in their committing to helping, they are betraying the people they're trying to help by working with the dictators. This is the case in North Korea, for sure. All these people try to help these North Koreans, 
but really they're working with the dictatorship. So the dictatorship's not stupid. It wouldn't allow people to come in who would actually help the people. No, no, no. Like they, they allow people to come in and they take the grain and they steal it and they give it to the military. Uh, or, or I'd never forget this one time I was in like the Asia Foundation. I don't know if you guys heard about this huge philanthropic foundation. And I brought in guys who smuggle books into North Korea to actual people uh, on USB keys uh, like they used to do in Cuba. Um, and uh, I was like, look, can you guys help these fine gentlemen with their work? And they're like, no, that would risk our relationship with, with the government, with the DPRK, because we have a train that goes from China with books, educational books that goes to the, the regime. And we're all sitting there being like, what? Like that, this, these guys are like the Nazis and you guys are like helping them. You're giving them texts and like scientific materials and you won't help the actual people because it could risk your relationship with the government. Like what is happening here? And we just like left the room. Um, they were so clueless, but that mentality is completely pervasive across the humanitarian aid industry. So I'll just end my little rant here, but it's, it's, it's very disappointing. That's very eye-opening for us that on, on the inside. You, you two uh, are facing challenges that many of us listening or you know, myself included being part of this, I have no idea that this is going on. Like you, you just um, <clears throat> assume these big organizations, uh, you, you name the few, uh, whether it's the Red Cross or whoever, um, are doing amazing work and you don't realize all the fat and all of the systemic problems that that arise from having such a, a big organization. So, I mean, point made, uh, I want to, as I'm watching the time, I know you've got around 10 minutes. Um, I want to talk about um, negativity in the media, uh, which is probably going to trigger you both. Uh, and just, just to uh, conclude on that, let's see, Daniel, for your audience, the, the, the best place to start to start unpacking the humanitarian industry is an essay in the New Yorker from 2010 called Alms Dealers. ALMS dealers. And the subtitle is, can you provide humanitarian aid without facilitating conflicts? It is a brilliant essay by Philip Gorovich who wrote, um, who wrote this book, uh, which is an absolute must read. We wish to inform you that tomorrow we will be killed with our families. It's one of the best books about the Rwandan genocide. Um, so Philip wrote this book about the aid industry as he calls it. And it's it's essential reading to start to understand the predicament that we find ourselves in and probably the frustrations that Letty faces on a, you know, on a practical basis. Yeah, I think there are two ways to, to also approach this. One is to try to change the system from within and to what Alex says. I, um, I know lots of people working in humanitarian aid uh, organizations that are trying and they're really frustrated because they really know that the system is broken, but they're trying to fix it from within. And then us who are deciding to, okay, let's, let's, let's fill in the gaps. Let's create something that um, is an alternative and can make things easier for, for those who are trying to help. But then the problem here is that going back to um, the, for example, funding applications, we don't get those funding, those funds, because we don't fit, you know, we don't have a structure that is easy for them to give us money. So we need to get other actors involved who believe in what we're doing, even if we are small, because everyone starts small. And some things I'm facing is they want to see big numbers, big numbers, and they don't realize that for us, the numbers are important, but what is more important is the um, significant improvement in our participants' lives 
since they get into the program. So I would also encourage people when they want to donate to not look at, okay, how many, you know, how many people are they helping, but how are they making a significant uh, improvement into these people's lives? So you, you're acting like a startup when it comes to funding. It's as if, um, because you don't fit that that system. And you, yeah, we right, are okay. a startup. We bootstrapped for three years. <laughs> Alex, how does, that differ to, how does that differ to the Human Rights Foundation? Or is it the same? Uh, how does it work for you guys? And what advice can you give to Letty? Yeah, I mean, look, we're a traditional nonprofit, uh, you know, raising money to do our work with on the ground partners and, and collaborators. Um, we're not, you know, we're not necessarily in the, you know, we're not, we're not doing rescue, uh, you know, we're not doing uh, kind of like uh, relocation. Um, we admire you and all the others who do that incredibly hard work. There are those, for example, in North Korea uh, who, who leave and then who are, who are rescued in, in China as they're, as they're, as they're stuck. And, and those organizations are incredible. Like Liberty in North Korea would be a good example. Um, we've chosen a different tack based on our exper expertise, and we, we focus on trying to address the root problem, which is the dictatorship itself. Um, ultimately, look, you can, you can, every life is equal and all human lives are important, which is why this is key. But like, ultimately, these refugees are going to keep coming unless this, the root problems are solved, which, which are mainly dictatorship. 96% of refugees come from, from dictatorships around the world. No, there's no refugees fleeing Canada or Norway or Germany. Like that's not how it works or Japan. They usually flee from authoritarian regimes almost exclusively, uh, whether it's Syria, Eritrea, Venezuela, uh, Somalia, etc. <coughs> uh, North Korea, um, Afghanistan. So, um, you know, if you don't have some sort of political reforms, we're hopeless. Like you're not going to, those people, there are still going to be people who want to flee those places. So, We've chosen to take a tack where we like, for example, in the North Korean case, we we try to like get more information inside North Korea so people can educate themselves about what's happening. And hopefully that can like make a difference. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's tough. I I I think that practically speaking, though, Bitcoin's gonna be, I mean, just Bitcoin will make a massive difference in this in the next 10 years. And and it's not just Bitcoin. I mean, just this idea of like practically showing people like A, people who are about to leave and flee, or B, people who've, who are in transit, or C, people who've arrived in their new destination. There's different courses for each stage. But if you've arrived in a European country, or in South Korea, or in America, and you're a refugee, and you can't, it's hard for you to open a bank account, you can't get Cash App to work, there is a course for you to, to take to learn how you can ask for your income to be paid in Bitcoin. Uh, and then you can control your own currency. That's so important. Um, ditto for the people who are about to leave. If there's like a resource or a textbook on the internet that doesn't exist yet, that's like, like a, someone could spend three hours and learn about, okay, I have to leave in the next week for different reasons, but I have internet access and I can learn. Okay, really? Okay, I could just go on Facebook and I could find these people in Syria who are willing to take my uh, pounds, Syrian pounds, and they're willing to exchange it for Bitcoin. Oh, I'm going to go do that now then. Great. Yeah, you should do that now. Because if you don't do that now, you're not going to have any money when you get to Europe. So I think this is so fundamental for all refugee work, like right now to start to really wrap your head around this and start to like institutionalize this in all aspects of refugee work um, from the people about to flee to the people who've already arrived in their new country. Um, 
it can help on both ends. So that's my like parting thought here. Let's see, do you have anything um, further that you would like to ask Alex, Alex advice on when it's, uh, when it comes to Bitcoin? Oh, and we're happy to like help you understand how to do that. Of course, that has to be done offline, but uh, we, we run workshops with human rights activists to help them understand how to do this stuff. Yeah, for sure. We will, as I said at the beginning to your daughter, <laughs> for me, this is all very new. We are just trying to um, understand every day what's the, the best way to support. And if I'm here, it's because I definitely think that Bitcoin is something that we need to, to explore further. And maybe we can be a strategic player for you guys to start getting this information into refugees because as uh, Alex said at the beginning, um, big organizations sometimes treat refugees as if they are their property and it's really hard to get access to them. You cannot educate them. You cannot, um, you know, it's like anything you're going to tell them gets filtered. Uh, what PATH is doing is we're building our own um, map of refugee talent in Europe and even across the world. So we're every day we, you know, the, the people we have access to and our community of refugee professionals gets bigger and bigger. So um, we'll definitely uh, be keen to, to translate this information to them and, and help them. Excellent. Yeah, I mean, if, if anything, I can, I can just offer one piece um, uh, that may help you start to think about this. I, I wrote a piece a couple of years ago for CNN um, that I'll, I'll just uh, I'll just mention here and y'all you know listeners can check it out. Um, it's called Bitcoin could change the game for foreign aid. And um, I, a lot of things have changed since I wrote this. I'm not gonna lie, but they're all good things. Like basically Bitcoin has gotten way more liquid than it was even two years ago. So I mean again, you can find someone who's happy to buy your Bitcoin in, in almost every place on earth. Um, but the general concepts are in that article. The fact that the foreign aid industry is extremely wasteful, the fact that it's uh, extremely difficult for people to, when they relocate, to, to access financial services, uh, and the fact that this technology can, can really be a huge help there if, if people are willing to open their mind to it. I mean, that's a big if. It's a big if because, I mean, I've been, I can tell you how many times I've been laughed out of the room by people who work at the World Bank and stuff. Um, I mean, it's, or, or they have like, or they have like a scorn or like an anger or some sort of negative emotion towards it, even though they've never used it. It's, it's really fascinating to me. Um, but it, you know, it is what it is, but if you come at this with like a good heart and an open mind, you will realize that this tool is like absolutely transformative for this, for this conversation. So I hope, I hope we can help however we can. Thank you, Alex. Yeah, brilliant. Brilliant to do this. Uh, Alex, do you have time for one more question or have you got to run? Uh, yeah, one more. Let's do it quick. Right, okay. Um, we're getting a lot of FUD at the moment in the Bitcoin space and the media. You don't say. Negativity. You know, you no, don't. you don't say. <laughs> <laughs> but, oh my God, it's, uh, it's on absolute fire. Um, what's the FUD? Can you, can you kind of like uh, round out our knowledge? What's the fund we should look for on, in, on your side of things, like on the humanitarian aid and stuff? We're, we're very used to Bitcoin's boiling the ocean. Well, the big one that I'm tackling lately is, I mean, I mean, look, there's, there's an energy FUD. Um, there's the, crim, it's for criminals FUD. Um, yeah. There's the, it's basically all the technical arguments. It's not going to work or governments are going to 51% attack it or whatever, all that FUD. The new one, the new one is that it's causing genocide in China. 
this is a very interesting one. So this is one I'll just briefly, uh, people basically are saying that because there's some percentage of Bitcoin mining that happens in Xinjiang, okay, that, that somehow that like, that's helping kill Uyghurs. This is their argument. And, and like, the crazy part is, it couldn't be further from the truth. Um, that, that, that Bitcoin is like one of the only things in the world that the Chinese Communist Party doesn't control and can actually erode their power and help liberate people inside China. Like people are so clueless that they're, they're like rinse and repeating this FUD from two or three journalists who wrote about this, that Bitcoin has a Xinjiang problem. No, the CCP has a Bitcoin problem. Um, that's the answer. So to counter this FUD, we're getting the little Bitcoin book translated into Uyghur. It comes out in a couple of days, a free PDF for all the Uyghurs to read. Um, and uh, I'm doing courses for Uyghurs offline um, to help them understand this. The, war, the biggest tragedy, Leti, would be that like different communities of whether it's Syrians or Uyghurs or uh, Eritreans or Somalis get scared of Bitcoin because of what they read in the news and then they don't involve themselves in it. That would be a huge mistake because these populations are already vulnerable and the cards are already stacked against them. Here's an opportunity for them to have the edge to be on the frontier of something and to front run everybody else, including their former captors and the people who crushed their country. So now is the time to educate and to like spread information about Bitcoin so that refugees can start using it today, start, start buying whatever they can, start investing in it, start using it in their businesses. And like, God, in 10 years, they'll be just so much further ahead of everybody else. I mean, this isn't even about trying to scrap by. This is like a real opportunity for these people to be like stars in these new countries. So that's why we got to like battle the FUD. It's very important. It's amazing that, that uh, yeah, I saw a little clip earlier, something along the lines of uh, Bitcoin is bad for human, uh, human aid, or I can't remember. It was just, it was amazing. Absolutely. Yes, give them a CNN piece, give them the CNN piece and <laughs> give them my reason video. And then like, you know, then they can come argue with me and I can help them unpack why they're wrong. I can't believe that was uh, so, so hot of the press when I had this, this lined up with you two guys today. So uh, I'm, I'm glad I touched on that before you had to run. So thank you. Thank you both so much for, for coming on, Alex. I hey. uh, really appreciate it. That was great. Thank you so much. Thank Take you. care, guys. See you, man. Take care. Letty, thank you uh, for coming on and um, and being open to to listen to to Bitcoiners because this is what we find is so difficult when when we see how it can help in so many different walks of life in so many different uh, industries in so many different sectors whatever you want to call them but people are just uh, unwilling to listen. Um, You've been the complete opposite. It's such a breath of fresh air to, to have you come on and be willing to learn and, and share your experience with the, the problems you've been facing. And I just hope now that uh, you, you've got a great contact here in Alex and the Human Rights Foundation, and I'm sure they'll do as much as they can to, to help you guys educate first yourselves about Bitcoin and the people that you are interacting with daily. And hopefully that knowledge can roll down to their friends and family uh, back home, wherever they are, and we can really start using this tool for what it is, a, a tool of freedom. Yeah, definitely. I think that um, one thing that refugees are is extremely resilient and smart, and when they see a solution that has potential, they are not, they are not scared. So I really believe, both Alvaro and myself believe in the um, word of mouth, and once we get um, our participants who really trust us to 
you know, accompany them through the process of understanding this. I have zero doubt that they'll be up for it. I already know some uh, refugee entrepreneurs who are exploring it because they only want to hire other refugees to work in their companies, but they're finding it really hard because of the system. So again, this is all just to tell you that I am not an expert yet, but I am so open to you know, understanding it and then um, making it simpler, both for refugees and also for humanitarian organizations to understand it. Because I, what I can tell you is that at the beginning when, when Alvaro told me to come here and speak to you, I was scared because I'm like, I'm going to make a fool of myself because I don't, I don't understand Bitcoin, but then um, all, I, all I'm seeing from you, from Alex, and from all the Bitcoin community is just people really wanting to, to help us understand. So I'm the one saying thank you. Thank you for inviting me and for believing in PATH. Yeah, I, how can you not believe in what you guys are trying to achieve? It's it's amazing. And um, the, the personal sacrifices that all of you guys do to, to do this important work is is hugely undervalued. Um, so I, I did, hopefully there'll be many people listening that, that might want to reach out to you and see if there's any way they could add value. Uh, so how, how can they reach you, Letty? What, what's the best way to find you? So either through our website, which is pathpaz.ai, or they can email me directly at smile at path.ai and I'll be more than happy to, to talk to them. That's cool. Smile at pathpaz.ai, yeah? Yeah. Love it. We cannot get it. negative emails to that. <laughs> you, you can't can you there's no way in the world and you've you've done nothing but sit here on this whole interview smiling so thank you again for for taking the time to come on and uh truly wish you all the best with with everything that you're trying to achieve thank you very much hey guys thank you so much for listening and again Alex and Letty thanks for your time for coming on sharing your experiences and trying to help each other out especially you Alex trying to uh, help Letty understand more about Bitcoin obviously we know this is a long journey down the rabbit hole down the rabbit hole when we first come to it it's very confusing it's uh, incredibly hard to navigate and I'm just truly thankful that we, we have Bitcoiners in the space uh, such as people like, like Alex at the Human Rights Foundation that take this time to, to come on and do shows like this just completely out of the blue to to help other people and this is this is what the space is about and this is why i'm so insanely bullish for the future so fingers crossed that this can go on and become part of uh, paths initiative to to help people arriving in, in strange countries under circumstances whether they be you know, political or or from war-torn countries or from um, drought uh, drought areas or whatever it might be that they can turn their lives around much quicker now with the, the power of bitcoin thank you everybody for listening uh, i look forward to the next show don't forget please check out the sponsors that's coinfloor.co.uk if you're uk based it's swan in the us swanbitcoin.com and it is relay 
in Europe, R-E-L-A-I dot C-H. Use forward slash bitten for all of those sites. And thanks again, everybody, for listening.